Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and with me are the NCP crew, Richard. Yo. Luke. That's right, I'm back. I'm well. And the world is mine. Hey, Crystal. We're on the air. The world is mine. <laughs> I think you made that point. Um, look, I'm willing to give it to you at a reasonable price. <laughs> That's it. Slightly discounted for, you know, evilness. It's like that dude that's uh, like, like all, all the many times you've gotten the, the Statue of Liberty that's been sold and <laughs> the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, ah, Luke settles not for mere <laughs> statues and tributes. The world! He already has the, the moon. You know, you're welcome to it. Yeah. Really, if you can manage the whole world, go for it. It's a bit of a mess. Yep. <laughs> Luke doesn't mind cleaning. <laughs> the human world, it's a mess. Ah. <laughs> uh. Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. And apparently, world conquest. How do you measure a good opinion? Well, if I have it, it's therefore good. If other (laughs) people have it and it's not my opinion, then therefore it's bad. That's pretty much the scale I use. (laughs) Okay, that's a scale, but that's not measurement. If we want to get into it, do you use a tape measure? Do you use. Well, no, my uh, a my sundial. No, no, no. There really are just two standards. You either agree with me or you're wrong. I say we have uh, we measure it in fluids, so we can have one of those bobbing bird things. I just want to say, he stole my bet. <laughs> That's true. I did. <laughs> Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. This episode, we're introducing a new segment, Spotlight On. Uh, that's right, my website column comes to life on the podcast. For those of you following on the website, uh, Spotlight On is uh, the segment where I pick uh, either a person from pop culture or a, a selection of films that I've seen recently or something like that and just do short little reviews on them. The podcast version of that, though, will be focusing on particular people. We'll do ba- uh, basically a biography of them plus their works and then rate and review their works in a cool little segment. I do say so myself. So really what you're saying is this is basically your vanity project. That's basically it. All right, just checking. <laughs> uh, on the website, I've already covered Kevin Smith and Steven Spielberg, um, so check them out. Uh, but for our first podcast edition of Spotlight On, uh, I thought there could be nobody better than fanboy god, Joss Whedon. Well, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> the fanboys have a god? Yeah, if, if the fanboys, oh, yes, if the fanboys had a deity, it would be Joss. It used to be Kevin Smith, but now they worship Joss more. Yeah, that's true. Because, you know, Kevin Smith made Cop Out. <laughs> no, Kevin Smith copped out far before he made that film. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but before we get into any of that, I want to take the time to mention the passing of the legend, Mr. Joe Cubitt. Uh, Mr. Cubitt passed away uh, what would now be about a week ago. Uh, at age 85, um, he is, like I said, a legend in the comic industry. It's I, I can't think of anybody who didn't look after him um, and you know treat him as the legend that he was. He began his career in the industry as a teenager and never stopped penciling. He even penciled from his hospital bed recently. Mm. Uh, he's probably best known for his uh, for creation of Sergeant Rock, uh, who he co-created with Robert Kenner. Uh, but he's also known for Hawkman, Tor, and Enemy Ace. Um, and I personally will also consider him, will always consider him to be the definitive Tarzan artist. Um, he is often considered the ultimate war story artist, but Mr. Cubitt preferred to be remembered as an anti-war artist, and he published some stories based, uh, based just talking about the futility of war, essentially, and just how horrible it is. 
Uh, and if I could just interrupt there yeah. on that point, things even things like Enemy Ace, yeah, um, where Enemy Ace himself is not a pro-war person, but sees it as an as an inevitability. Yeah, sort of has an anti-war sentiment to it as well. Hmm. Um, and even though I've actually not read Sergeant Rock, which is sinful of me, I know. Um, shameful, shameful. But even Sergeant Rock, um, both are, you know '60s creations in which the anti-war sentiment was actually quite strong, and that came through even in his um, war stuff there. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's my. Like Sergeant answer. Rock was the ultimate soldier, but he never, he was never bloodthirsty. Or no. Um, yeah. So one of those, uh, one of these best-known publications about the pointlessness of war would be Facts from Sarajevo, mm. um, which is excellent. So his legacy will not only live on in his amazing body of work. But also through the art school, the Cubit art, the Cubit school, um, and his artist sons Andy and Adam, um, and the rest of his family as well. I think we just I just want to talk a little bit about the school for a second mm. because first of all, it is the only school um, dedicated purely to training comic artists. Yeah, um, it's been in existence since 1976, and if you have a look at the list of graduates um, that actually came through the school, it's it's a who's who. Yeah. of artists of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. Like, it's just astonishing the number of people that um, have, you know, have, have gained wisdom from Qubit and have then, you know, gone on to, you know, create a name for themselves and change the comic industry themselves. So, mm. And your sons will continue to teach there as well. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, so the NCP crew uh, wish to extend our condolences to the Qubit family, um, and uh, it's a loss. Um, so it's a, it's a sad time for uh, nerd culture who's also... Uh, with the passing of celebrated sci-fi author Harry Harrison, uh, who passed away a couple of days after Mr. Cubit. Um, he is obviously best known for his work Make Room, Make Room, which was eventually turned into Silent Green. Um, and, but he also uh, has a famous character, the, the stainless steel rat, uh, who I, I think is pretty cool. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, do, so do a lot of people. So, um, yeah, so another loss to the... Lost to the world, uh, but uh, we'll be covering um, one of his works in a future episode. That's correct. We'll be looking in a few uh, dust jackets from now to uh, review Make Room, Make Room. I think in honour of his passing, it's actually probably a good timely book to read. Okay, so let's move on to Spotlight on Joss Whedon. Okay, Joss Whedon was born in New York City. He's the, he's the son of Tom Whedon, who was a screenwriter for The Electric Company. Ah, The Electric Company. The Electric Company. <laughs> and uh, cool. The Golden Girls. And is the grandson of John Whedon, who was a writer for The Donna Reed Show. So he's a third generation screenwriter. So can I just say, easy reader says this comic book is easy <laughs> to read. <laughs> I gotta say, that's actually kind of cool. He, it is. You know, it, uh, Screenwriting is in is in the blood. It's genetics. Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, not, it's not so much a, a, a career choice so much as an, as an inevitability. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. He's followed in the family business, <laughs> and business is good. And business is good. Uh, his mother, Lee Stearns, taught history at Riverdale Country School and was an unpublished novelist. Um, Whedon gives his mother uh, credit for inspiring his feminist worldview. Uh, his his brothers are Samuel Matthew. Jed and Zach, and he's he's collaborated with uh, Jed and Zach are also writers, so he's collaborated with them on some projects, which we'll get to later on. Uh, Whedon graduated from Wesleyan University in 1987. Before going to Wesleyan, he spent two years at Winchester College in England. Posh. Hey, yes. Yes. 
Can I just ask, is Joss short for anything? It, Apparently, I don't think so. Like not so she just, just named him after incense. <laughs> is it what? Is there an incense called Joss? It's joss stick is an incense. Joss stick. Maybe. Uh, who knows? <laughs> That's a very interesting point. So, somebody, uh, if any of our listeners out there, if you happen to know, um, write in. Let us know I've whether it actually was true. Never heard of anyone called Joss before. <laughs> now you have the the pop culture god. Worship him. I'll sacrifice you in his name. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> so following a move to Los Angeles Sweden secured his first writing job on the television series Roseanne and later Parenthood and after working several years as a script doctor for films he returned to television uh, so television work his first television show was actually a spin-off of his film Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, which we'll get to later on uh, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer the TV show was a critical and cult hit receiving Emmy Award nominations for outstanding writing in the drama series in 2000 uh, Buffy ran for five seasons on the WB and it was then relocated to the UPN for its final two seasons so seven seasons of, of Buffy goodness gotta confess I'm actually not a huge fan of the show I've, the bits and pieces that I've seen I have a knife here somewhere I'm sure <laughs> no it's okay you're entitled to your opinion no I'm with Luke <laughs> it's Never hated the show, as in didn't think it was, oh my god, why are people following this, but was never a huge fan of it. Never thought that Buffy, her- and it's partly because of Buffy herself, mm. she never really rose, there was only one episode where I thought she rose above the, um, the, the sort of the one line that they kept her about throughout the entire show, and that was the, um, the episode after she killed Angelus. Mm-hmm. I thought she'd kill her just, um, I believe the episode is called Annie where she actually go leave some of um, yeah she goes to work at a diner it goes to work in a diner I watched it on the TV well, when it was on TV because it was on but I, I never really got into it enough to to keep watching it to track it down and, and own copies of it or anything like that I, I didn't mind it I didn't hate it but it's it's no Star Trek okay. <laughs> yeah okay. that's uh, fair enough okay. that's I'll, it it's I'll, no Star Trek alright fair enough I actually think the first three seasons of Buffy uh, perfect television the character developments the storytelling the character relationships are just spot on the slow build up of stories I actually thought those first three seasons yeah. were fantastic then they lost several key characters that I thought really added to the dy- the dynamic of the show they lost several key characters to the spin-off which I'm sure we'll be getting to shortly um, yeah. to Angel but um, and I think the show floundered a little bit I think the fourth season especially is, whilst it has my absolute favourite single episode, as as a whole, I thought the season was very weak. Um, I thought it recovered nicely with um, season five and the introduction of Dawn, which I thought was just beautifully written and very cleverly done and very interesting change in the nature of the show. But the last couple of seasons... Other than Evil Willow, who was awesome, um, the last couple of seasons, once again, it just sort of floundered a little bit, and I don't think it ever really recovered from losing, you know, the the Buffy Angel dynamic, which really was an absolute key part of those those early seasons. Mm. Um, having said that, overall, I actually enjoyed the show, and I enjoyed watching it, obviously, a lot more than the others did. So uh, I'm a fan. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> so that's pretty much word for word what I was going to say. Fantastic. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. No, I was. An absolutely massive fan at the time. Like I bought all the DVDs, rebought the DVDs in a new version. I'll buy the Blu-rays when they came out. When they come out, and uh, it's you know posters, books, action figures, ridiculous. I went mad. Um, it's it was 
it was uh, a major part of my life for a period there, and I agree. I agree with everything you said. Yeah. I also found that the Buffy Spike relationship just never worked for me. Yeah, it's just, especially during that period where when she comes back from the dead and she doesn't know whether she's human, and, and they yeah. have these ridiculous sex scenes, and it's just as, goes on, and it's just oh, it's yeah. just season season six is just what the hell's going on here? And, and as a, even as a non fan, when I heard that, I just I actually thought, well, that doesn't work. He's mm. Spike's been the bad guy almost from the start, bordering on anti-hero. Yeah. And suddenly, the now, audience now, now expect, the audience is now expected to believe that Buffy and Spike, after all that they've been through, yeah, where they've actually been at each other's throats. And now in a relationship. And now in a relationship. It's... But, I mean, Buffy, I mean, it's, it's like I said, it was a phenomenon at the time, and, and, and it still is an incredibly popular show, and it's what Joss is basically known for. Mm. I mean, there really are just some amazing episodes. Um, most notably, of course... Uh, Once More with Feeling, uh, which is the musical episode. Um, Hush. Uh, Hush, which is the completely silent episode. And, and that's the favourite episode that I was referring yeah. to. I think it's um, the Body, where Buffy's mother dies. Um, and, you know, leading, you know, basically culminating in, you know, a pretty, the weak couple of seasons until it ends in with the excellent Trojan. So it's, it's, it's got some amazing stuff and I highly recommend it. And, and uh, let's have some ratings. So I give it uh, 4.5 out of 5 for, as a whole. I can't rate it because I haven't seen the whole okay. seven seasons. I haven't seen the whole thing, but that won't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I give it 2.5. I understand its I understand its um, cultural importance to Gen X, Gen Y, and its pop cultural importance. Um, it's not a terrible show by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it is not one that I jump up and down and rave about. I give it 2.5 works. Um, overall, I give the show 3.5. However, if I was just ranking the first three seasons, especially seasons two and three, I would actually give it five. Those oh. two seasons especially are brilliant. But overall, 3.5, because there are a couple of weak seasons towards the end there. Yeah, which is why I don't give it five. Yeah. <laughs> that brings us to Angel, which is a, a spin-off of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, as Richo mentioned, uh, Angel and uh, Cordelia left the main show and went off into their own show uh, set in the same universe but they go to Los Angeles yeah so Angel at this point is uh, back to being good Angel uh, not Angelus so he's, uh, he's got his soul back and uh, he's gone off to become a private detective in uh, this cool sort of semi-noir sort of uh, <laughs> Philip Marlowe type deal uh, it's kind of weird uh, debuted on the WB in September 1999 and ran for five seasons uh, during its first two seasons it uh, collaborated with the Buffy show um, fairly regularly but then went off and became sort of its own beast. Um, and it's very good. <laughs> I mean, it really is very, very, very good. It's uh, At first it was kind of, I was a bit hesitant because it was, it's like, here we go, it's the, they all spin off, they very rarely work. You know, Johnny loves Chachi. <laughs> off the happy days. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving on from my bizarre childhood. Um, yeah, so it's, it, Angel, so at first I was kind of hesitant, but uh, it definitely grew into its own. And, uh, is, is is equal to the original show, and in some parts, some parts actually superior. I would say actually overall, it's a superior show. Hmm. It's a more grown up show. It is. It's a much darker show hmm. as well. Um, I think it's actually a more intelligent show, as you say. It's a more grown up show, so it's it's trying to be a little bit more intelligent and in depth with its character work. I think it does suffer a little bit in its fifth season. I think the f- I mean the first four seasons are effectively one giant storyline, yeah, and it's a quite a remarkable storyline. And I think that they 
really do bring everything to a close at the end of season four quite nicely. And I do like I do like season five. It's a quite an interesting uh, setup and an interesting change to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the equal of those first four seasons, which are really quite excellent. Um, it does seem tacked on. It does have, I think, a much better ending. Yeah. And I know that this is a point of some controversy amongst uh, Buffy and Angel fans, but I actually love the final episode of Angel. I think it's a fantastic ending. I agree. And the fact that it leaves it open-ended in a in a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid yep. sort of way, to me, is just fantastic. Yeah. It's it's the best way that they could have ended the show. And it fits with the show. I mean, the show, I mean, the show is all about sort of... Uh, flying by the seat of your pants, just, let's just get it done and have a way we can get it done sort of stuff. And uh, the, sh- the end of the episode does exactly it's, that. It's also the closest Joss Whedon has come to doing an out-and-out superhero TV show. Yeah. I mean, really, really, Angel is effectively the supernatural Batman yeah. <laughs> in his world, and there are lots of lots of shots of him brooding on rooftops and things like that. So. Not, not just that, but the first episode actually features him having you know a Batman-style lariat, which he fires into the roof. That's yeah. right. The joke being, of course, that it fails and he can't actually fly up, but it was, yeah, as, a, as you know, the, the Batman fan here, that was one of the things I appreciated from what I've seen of Angel, I haven't seen much past about the first five episodes of season one. I do prefer it to, to Buffy. Yeah, from what enough. I've seen, it is uh, the characters are the the character the characterization overall is um, a little deeper. There is a bit more mystery as to what's going on, whereas you know in Buffy it was well they're just in the Hellmouth yeah. monsters monsters and hijinks ensue. Whereas here it's a case of hang on what's going on with um the Wolfram and Hart the Wolfram and Hart. I keep wanting to say Landau Luckman and Lake, but. Um, the wolf from heart. That's um, probably pretty close. Yeah, um, stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, and just a bit more engaging on that on that ground. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it also has uh, the better Spike Angel interactions. Mm. <laughs> basically, Spike just basically just picks on Angel for being so pretty. <laughs> His excellent hair and stuff. There is another thing that I do want to point out that I think is to the deficit of the show, and it once again does occur in that fifth season. Once again, it's Spike. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly Spike comes into the show. He's made this big sacrifice at the end of Buffy. Yeah. And really that should have been it. Yeah. You know, heroic sacrifice, it redeems his character, despite my, you know, dislike of that entire storyline. His character is redeemed, he dies, that's the end, no problem. But then they bring him into Angel and once again it just doesn't doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> his entire presence in, in the fifth season of, of Angel just it just seems like they tacked it on because the yeah. fans loved the character. Yeah, well, I, I'm agree. I'm agreeing with uh, agreeing with everybody. Is it is? But and yeah, I wasn't really that big fan of Angel in in Buffy. I mean, it was basically just there for the the romance you know, angle, and I really, really wasn't interested. I was more interested in the the supernatural kick buttness. Um, the action, the action, the action, the action. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, but he really comes into his own in his own show, and it it works. So uh, yeah, I'm going to give uh, Angel the series as a whole 4.5 as well oh I'm the only person that's actually seen the entire series so <laughs> um, look I will give it 4 yeah awesome so then uh, still sticking with television Whedon then moved on to his space western television series Firefly um, it's it's pretty well known the story of, of poor Firefly it was the series was cancelled only after 11 of the 14 completed episodes were aired and those ones that were aired were aired out of order, mm-hmm. uh, making it quite difficult for people to sort of get into the show. 
Um, it was a weird sort of mix to begin with. I mean, a space western. Who would have thunk it? Mm. Um, but uh, it just made this just made it quite hard. It was, it was, tra- it was treated with a lot of disdain uh, by the the television executives, and uh, yeah, eventually failed. And it's a shame because it's genius. There's a nice joke made about it on um, Big Bang Theory where they go back to the past and Sheldon says, well, this is going to last forever, so it's going to be <laughs> in, yeah. in our Friday night slots. Because or... Sheldon loves it. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, 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 a, it's a weird idea, but it works. This and... is one I have seen. Mm. Oh, well, that's yes. good. I'm glad we've all seen it. Because uh, you made it. Is, it is absolutely, it's, it's brilliant. I, I, I cannot say it enough. It's just every single thing works. The story works, characterization. The acting, mm. the setting, it's it's just brilliant stuff, and it's just um, um, it was heartbroken that it that it died the death that it did. Yeah, particularly on, given that the last episode is not the um not the type of episode you want to leave the show on. Yeah, it's a it's a shame that he couldn't give some closure, some finality to the series. They couldn't give him that one extra episode just to round a couple of things off. Yeah, it's just like in Millennium where they finished in the X Files. Yeah. yeah. That's a terrible episode. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think... But the Millennium's well, awesome. The thing that Joss brings to this that really makes it stand out is the characters. Mm. Whereas unlike in Buffy, I wasn't really a lot interested in Buffy. thought Mal was great. He ended up being my favourite character. Yeah, in spite so. of the fact that he's probably of the least of them. He, hasn't, he doesn't have quite as many quirks. Yeah. But because there is a, a deep backstory and a psychology behind what he does, plus his loyalty to his crew... And even though he doesn't always get along with his crew, or even like them in the case of Jane, he will defend them tooth and nail because they are on his ship, they are under his protection, and they are in his care. Hmm. And I thought he was a great character. He's not not even necessarily even always nice. He's not, no, he's not always the nicest guy. Just being the good guy doesn't mean you have to be the nice guy. Mm, That's right. Um, I think my favourite character is Jane. And I like Jane too, but Mal... And, and Mal, and it's a credit to both Joss's writing and the and the writers of that he hired, of course, yeah. and Nathan Fillion, that um, Mal kind of came to life. Mm. Um, also, I think they brought the universe quite well. I love the fact that there is no sound in space. Yeah, it's actually interesting that the show. Oh, it's a shame that the show didn't survive because had it survived long enough for the DVD sales figures to come in, the show was. A huge DVD success like phenomenal DVD success so much so that it did actually end up spawning its own movie in the end which we will talk about later but um, if it had just been able to survive one season and they could have gotten the DVDs out I think the show actually would have survived having said that it is a great show but we are only looking at what 14 14 episodes episodes. yeah to be fair so it hasn't had the chance to suffer the way that, say, Buffy did in its later season. So That's I just true. wonder what would have happened had the show continued. It, would well, it have lost its way in any way? It would it have jumped the shark. You know? it, pro- well, it probably would have in the end, as in the case of most long-running shows, you have you know, those seasons that are actually not as strong. So it would have. It's, it was an, that was, that, that's an eventuality. Um, but how do you know that, though? But, I mean, it, it, on the flip side, though, its first season was brilliant compared to the first season of Next Gen, which was awful. That's true. Which then become brilliant. I mean, but, it's, I mean, could, how, couldn't it have bucked the trend? Couldn't it have I, been brilliant the entire way? Through? Um, but then to go by that logic, Buffy, which is according to you, according to both Dave and Richo, um, is genius for three seasons. Yeah. And then after that, it sort yeah. of peters out. And from what yeah. you're saying, Angel is genius for four seasons, and then season five loses its way as well. Yeah. yeah. So um, following the same pattern. Yeah, yeah. following the same. Yeah, pattern. Following the Whedon pattern. Um, <laughs> Screw. <laughs> 
faster than your logic. I still love you, Luke. We've, we've offended the Whedon worshipper. <laughs> yes, you got to remember, I don't deify Joss Whedon. <laughs> Giving you the evil eye. Well, it wasn't for everybody, Firefly. I mean, our friends uh, Aaron and Karen aren't fans. <laughs> <laughs> what do they know? I've had uh, heated conversations with them about it, but... I mean, I, I mean, I know I bandied this term around a lot, but it is it is absolute brilliance, and uh, I I cannot recommend it enough. It's five out of five for sure. I only watched it because you made me watch it. But, <laughs> I but... didn't strap you down, Clockwork Orange style. Yes, you did. <laughs> Don't you know me to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but having said that, I did quite enjoy it. It's, it's still no Star Trek on my scale, but I did quite enjoy it. I'll give it three and a half. I found it thoroughly enjoyable. I don't think it's quite the masterpiece that uh, David is referring to it as, um, but it is a really entertaining show. It does have really great characters, and um, yeah, I give it four. This is probably my favourite of all the Joss Whedon universes. It's not the um, the the be-all and end-all of science fiction that a lot of the brown coats will tell you that it is, <laughs> yeah. um, but it is a highly enjoyable work, and... Worth people worth people's time. Is it fourteen episodes? So you're not going to lose a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. Um, watching it. Um, I give it four looks. Yeah, but if you don't fall in love with the crew at the end of those fourteen episodes, something's wrong. You don't have a heart. What? <laughs> I just gave it four looks. <laughs> I know. That's not arguing with you. That, that's pretty high I, on Luke's scale. It is pretty good. Mm. I think our friends. Good, I think our friends Aaron and Karen won't be speaking to you after that comment. But otherwise. <laughs> okay, so that moves us on to Dollhouse. Uh, after Buffy, Angel, and Firefly all went their, their separate ways, um, Joss was looking for another project. Uh, he really liked working with uh, Eliza Dushko, who played Faith in Buffy and Angel. And they sort of sat down for lunch one day and nutted out a whole bunch of ideas, and Dollhouse is what they come up with. Um, it continues the, the Joss Whedon theme of having empowered female, female roles. Uh, so it's you know, Buffy... River from Firefly and now um, Echo from Dollhouse uh, and basically deals with the concept of uh, the dolls who are mind-wiped agents. So you can say their original personalities are wiped and they get encoded with new personalities in order to satisfy the whims of their clientele, so the people who hire them out. Um, and yes, I don't like the show. <laughs> so I don't know if you can sort of tell from my tone of voice just there. It's just, it, they basically they basically become prostitutes. Um, and uh, I'm not a fan. How is that empowered female Yeah, well, because then Echo, Echo eventually, basically during the course of the two seasons, it only lasted two seasons and only got season two by the skin of its teeth. Um, it's during the course of the of the story, uh, Echo becomes uh, a just dealt being. Um, so yeah, so she becomes empowered and becomes the saviour of the, of the world. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting concept, uh, but for some reason, I, I, I can't really explain it. But when Dollhouse first came out, I was quite offended, and I'm not too sure why I had such a strong reaction to it. It's just this this whole sort of, I mean, it sort of started off. Season one is is a lot like uh, what Alias eventually became, where is it? You know, how sexy can we make the main character this episode? Um, and uh, I just, for some reason, just I really rebelled against it, which is kind of weird because it's, it's a Joss project. I actually have to d disagree. With, I just don't see the female empowerment of it. Yeah. It, only in so far as it's well, how almost. Why are you disagreeing with me about that? I actually said I don't think it's female empowerment. Well, no, you said that it, it followed the trend. It follows of, that trend, but yeah. I just I don't think it works. I actually think, I think what it's it, anti-empowering. 
Well, what it seems to be going for more than anything else, and, and certainly Buffy and um, Angel and Firefly certainly didn't do this, but it seems to be following more, almost a stylized version of the rape revenge idea of female empowerment. You know, these, these, these characters are all treated like, as you say, like prostitutes. Mm. But then the end result of that is that um, the people that are hiring them usually come to horrible ends because they're horrible people. Mm. And it's often at the hands of the dolls. Mm. Um, and certainly I think that becomes even more prevalent in the second season than in the first. Um, and so, whereas the female empowerment in the other shows comes from just presenting strong female characters. Yep. You know, these are women that can handle themselves and that can, you know, kick a bit of butt when they need to and that are usually resourceful and intelligent. Um, I just don't get that feel from from Dollhouse. It, I have to agree. Even this first episode, I had to fast forward bits because I was so bored. Yeah, I just, I, it just, like I said, it, just, it really, it offended me. I've actually got really annoyed with this show, um, I, and, I, and I gave up it. I didn't actually didn't bother watching season two until uh, a fan of the show, Stephen, um, recommended season two because the end of the end of season one ep ends with an episode that wasn't aired in Australia uh, called Epitaph One, which you know fast forwards you know five years into the future where the dollar technology has gone out of control and. And you know, there's a disaster for the world. Um, and season two basically deals with the how the, the lead up to that point. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, fan of the show, Stevens, uh, thank, uh, recommended that I check out season two, and that it would, you know, that he also didn't like season one and would move on to season two. So I followed his advice and I watched season two, and I agree, season two is better than season one. I do agree with that. Um, in more so that it becomes less of a you know, each in season one, each episode was basically an assignment that Echo was put on, whether it was you know prostitute of the week or action adventure of the week or that stupid one where she's hunted like game in that hard target episode. It's just crap. And then so it became more to, to lead up to, to lead up to what happens eventually happens in episode one. Um, so yeah, so it was better, but still, I gotta say I'm sorry. I just really wasn't really my cup of tea. I mean, there was a point about halfway through the season two where it actually became quite interesting. Um, mainly because of Fran Kranz's character Topher, um, and it's, I'm really disappointed now that I didn't get to meet uh, Fran when he was here for Oz Comic Con, because um, he he just does an, ama an amazing job, doesn't really really impressive job, um, and so too does the the actor I've forgotten his name who plays Victor, who at some points in season two becomes Topher, um, so you got the two of them sort of playing off each other, so they both do really really excellent jobs. Topher is an excellent character, but. Echo, who's the main character, is so unbelievably boring and unlikable that I just the whole point of the show sort of loses it for me. So I have to point out that I actually haven't seen Doll's House, yeah. and part of the reason why I haven't seen it. First of all, I'm not a um, a big I'm not a big um, Whedon person to begin with. I like some of his stuff, but not you know not to the point where I will religiously pick up everything. You're not a card carrying member of the not a card carrying of member. Um, he hasn't been baptized. <laughs> but with, but even with this, you know, generally, I, if it's a science fiction show, I generally check it out. But I heard about this, and all I could come up with, think of, was I've, I felt like I've read this, seen this, mm. hundreds of times before. I don't think it's overall as bad as certainly I might have painted it out to be. There are some positive elements to it, and there, there are some very good standalone episodes. Mm. Um, okay. I think in in some part in some instances the the parts are much better than the whole. Anyway, moving on, uh, Dollhouse. Uh, I give it uh, you know, one out of five. Uh, look, I'd give it two. Yeah, you know, it's 
It's not the worst show I've ever seen, but I think he summed it up pretty pretty nicely when he said it's it's individual parts are far better than the whole. Yeah. Um, and although not an actor, he has actually made cameos in his own show as well as others, as appeared in Veronica Mars, because he's such a huge fan of the show. He's the he's the rental car clerk. I know there's a very funny cameo. But I actually think his best cameo, without doubt, is Numfar in Angel. <laughs> yes. Do the dance of joy. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. It's actually a fun anecdote is um, uh, the, the actor who plays uh, Lorne uh, in Angel, the, the green-skinned singing guy, was, was seeing Joss practice his, his dance of joy. Um, but didn't know that it was Joss because Joss had his makeup and, his, uh, uh, on, and actually said, that guy is awful. Get him off the set. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually turned out to be Joss. Ah, oh, the dance of joy. And the dance of shame. The dance of shame. Joss didn't smite him down. <laughs> no, no, he thought it was funny. Um, yeah, gold stuff. So that's uh, Joss Whedon TV. Um, just still on the TV. He's just, just been announced that he's going to be doing uh, Marvel's new super secret TV project, uh, which is set in the, the Avengers movie universe. So it's set in the Marvel movie universe, not the comic universe, but there's no real uh, further details on really what's going to happen, which sounds kind of interesting, um, but, you know... I'll wait Until we get more information, <laughs> it's hard to say. Wait and see. Uh, so that moves on to film. Um, so as I said previously, Whedon co-wrote or wrote uh, several films, including uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's not very good. <laughs> and, uh, and that's being nice. <laughs> and uh, what's, going to be, what's going to be a bit of a theme for Joss Whedon's film career is that uh, he uh, writes or co- co-writes a number of films and quite often when they come out, they're pretty ordinary <laughs> to, be, to be nice. Um, and he, and he, he basically blames the people who produce it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's fair. It's, I mean, it's, it's okay, fair enough. That could possibly be the case. So, um, but yeah, so basically, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they basically, they took his idea and his concept and they just, they destroyed it. Um, although I do quite like um, Pete, uh, Paul Rubin's vampire death scene, which I think is pretty funny. But everything else is just, is awful. On the total flip side, in terms of success, uh, he also co-wrote Toy Story. Um, mm-hmm. So even he was nominated, uh, along with the other writers, for an Academy Award for Toy Story screenplay. Um, Toy Story is, is brilliant. Yep. <laughs> to infinity and beyond! Okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah, Toy Story is entertaining. I, I, think, I think it's very, very good. Um, he also uh, did Alien Resurrection. Oh, <laughs> the the dear, famous that's... story of... of uh, he was very upset about Alien Resurrection, and justifiably so, because it's terrible. Yep. Um, I actually don't think that's the case at all. I don't <laughs> think it's great, but... I actually didn't mind Alien Resurrection. I thought it was much better than Alien 3. Oh, I disagree. Substantially On the flip, better. On the flip, Alien 3 is better than Resurrection. Uh, he also did uh, Titan AE um, and wasn't happy with the final version of that. Um, no I saw, one would be. I saw it many moons ago. I can't remember if I, I can't remember if I liked it or not. I don't think I did. Um, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Um, and also, interestingly enough, he also wrote uncredited drafts or rewrites of Speed, Waterworld, Twister, and the first X-Men film. And according to Graham Yost, the credited writer of Speed, all of the dialogue in Speed is Whedon. And uh, I can believe I, that, because I've seen Speed. And, I actually uh, can't believe that, because for the most part, the dialogue in Speed is awful. And usually yeah. Whedon's dialogue is a bit better than that. Can no, I just say it's one? very, very Whedon-y, though. Can I just say one thing? Most of the dialogue is also spoken by Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> Um, so what, hang on. So what was that? That was Speed Twister, Waterworld, and oh, X Men. 
Well, Speed Twister and Waterworld are all awful movies, so... <laughs> Twister's alright. You've got Twist- cows. Twister's I don't awesome. mind Twister. I liked it when I first saw it, but then I was, you know, 13 when I first saw Twister. <laughs> we watched it again recently, and while it's not a great film, it's past the time. It's past the time. I love that we've got cows. It's fine. Yeah. It's my and uh, X-Men only had two bits of dialogue. And then, of course, we move on to Serenity, which was the... The finishing up that, that Luke wanted from the from the TV show yeah. of, of Firefly in film version. Uh, so, uh, because of the like Rich said, the huge success of uh, the DVDs yeah. um, and just the, the massive following from the brown coats and stuff like that of the show, uh, Joss was allowed to continue on with Serenity the film. That's the second time I've heard the term brown coats. Please explain. Brown coats is just the term that fans of Firefly call themselves, oh, ma- yeah. based okay. on uh, the brown Mal- coat. Yeah, so it's basically, so Mel and Zoe were part of the brown coat army in the in the show, and so equivalent of a tricky, yeah, or trekker, depending on yeah. your point of view. Oh, you or can my... say either one for God's sake, people. Or, get <laughs> or my personal favourite. Uh, thank you, the derivative. William. Thank you, William Shatner on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> the derivative term for uh, Twilight fans is twihard. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of like that one. Yeah, so Serenity, it's um, it's it's an interesting beast. I mean, it basically. It had to cater to the Firefly fans who already knew the story, um, and all, but also had to cater to a mass audience. Because if it was just made for the Firefly fans, it wouldn't have been a, a success in the cinema. So they had to also he had to sort of sort of write it in a way that you could get into it fresh for anybody who maybe hadn't seen Firefly, which would have been a lot of people. Um, so in that sense, it was it would have been a pretty hard job, and and, and it doesn't quite work. I think. I, I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it because of, of it's part of that universe, but. Because he had to cater to both camps, it just—I don't think it really works all that well. Yeah, he doesn't. I agree with you on that point. As a fan of the show, mm-hmm. um, I, I enjoyed it because it was the closing of a story. But as a um, an entity in and of itself, it, you can't actually you can't watch it without having yeah what what without having watched the show without pre um, Yeah. So in that case, it doesn't really work as a film. It doesn't really work as a film. Yeah. Um, but then it was it was the best shot that we were going to get of seeing some kind of conclusion to the story. Yeah. Um, I like the I like the fact that you mentioned shot because it actually starts the opening shot of five of Serenity is is brilliant. Is is the walk through the walk through the ship mm. um, where you basically you're introduced to each character and their character types. So basically, you get a snippet of their own of their personalities as Mel walks through the ship on the way to find out why we're about to crash. Yeah, and it's amazingly done, and it's mm. it's, it's it's probably it's, the closest he came to making it work. It's mm. also the closest he came to actually, certainly at that point in his career, into actually directing an actual movie shot. Yeah, one one of my big problems with Serenity is that it does very much come across as TV directing on the big screen, mm. and in that regard. There are some some of the directing doesn't work for me. Well, that's not such a failing in in if it's to the closure of a TV show, in my opinion. But I think if you're directing a movie, you've got to allow for the fact that it's being projected on a big screen, and mm. and, and you've got to kind of adapt your directing a bit to to the different medium. Um, fortunately, he's actually achieved that now, um, and certainly with Avengers. He's Although Avengers does have that opening sequence that does look like TV, a little bit, but for the most part, Avengers. Couple of shots. But for the most part, Avengers looks like a yeah. movie. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Serenity looks like a TV show, um, basically broadcast on a much bigger screen. Um, well, see, I never saw it on the big screen. I saw it on yeah. TV, like I did with the um, TV show. So it didn't not and such a big deal for me. And I actually yeah. think that's probably the best way to see it yeah. because it does look like a t- an episode of the TV show. So, 
seeing, seeing it on a small screen actually works a lot better, I think. Mm. Which is, I'd almost never say about any other movie. Although, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a couple, just really quick negative points. The scene where Mel's having his awesome, this is what we're going to do speech. Mm. With that stupid lens light. light behind him. Yeah. The light, I, I don't know who was doing the light on that show, but you suck. <laughs> it's just awful. <laughs> Um, you, I mean, basically, you can't see Mel. Mm. Like, what's the point That's... of this? Um, yeah, we've been kind of, kind of slightly negative on Paul Serenity, but it's it is very, very good. I I, yeah. I give it three out of five. I give it three. Yeah, I'd give it uh, probably three. Um, more importantly, it it gives me the the closure that I needed from the TV show. Yeah. That, that's what appeals to me. And it, and it is a good story. Mm. I do want to point that out. The actual story is good. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, and, yeah, it's shock horror because I actually think it is also a three-look film. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm actually agreeing with you people for once. So, we're so not we, wrong. We have we consensus. All, we all had threes. It, it, I'm it, only giving it threes because it's meant to be a film. And it's, I mean, it's, hmm. I, it's, I mean, really, I should give it higher because it's, I mean, it's, it's basically, I've seen the show and so, you know, love it so much and, and sort of stuff. But it just, I just don't think it really works yeah, no, as and its own entity. And that's partly why I'm giving it a three as well. It, um, you can't watch it enough having seen the TV show. It doesn't work by itself the way, say, a James Bond film yeah. works by itself. Um, but, you know, it's nice, to, it's a nice send-off for the characters. Mm. There were some, you know, nice, some nice poignant moments. Um, most of the characters. What? Most of the characters. Yeah, most of the characters. <laughs> um... And uh, it, it does actually fin- it does conclude yeah. the story, yeah, um, yeah and it concludes quite well. Sorry, all he needed to do, really. Um, talking about getting onto it, let's move on to Cabin in the Woods. Uh, Josh wrote this with Drew Goddard, and it was directed by Drew Goddard. It was uh, finished in two thousand and nine, uh, but wasn't released until later due to the MGM uh, bankruptcy. Uh, we saw it fairly recently, and uh, I liked it. Uh, I hate it, but it has its flaws. What was it? I hated it. Really? You hated it? Absolutely. <laughs> this film has everything I hate about horror in it. In it, it was quite boring up and towards the end, and it's sort of just a, a loosely based story just to hold together the gory scenes. Fair enough. There you go. Well, that's my it. opinion. I'm, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay, fine. I found that this is an instance of an idea that suffers from its execution. Yeah, I thought the idea behind it is really quite fascinating. That um, the the basic idea is that there are a group of scientists who are trying to keep effectively these elder gods at bay, and that they have to stage, however often, um, a series of sacrifices to appease the gods. And they do that by basically creating a horror movie scenario. A group of teenagers go off into the wo- a cabin in the woods and accidentally summon some kind of evil and then and then it killed off one at a time yeah in Um, sequence in sequence yeah um so and that's actually kind of an interesting idea Mm. i agree i I agree that's an interesting idea yeah and i like the fact that um you find out that there are other uh similar things facilities that are doing similar things all around the world Mm. because they're all trying to make sure that that the sacrifice occurs mm. so that the elder gods are appeased and that they don't show up and destroy the world. Um, and there is actually a very couple of very funny sequences where you see what's happening with the Japanese yeah. experiments and the Japanese experiment is all very um, sort of ring-inspired, you know, the ghost girl sort of storyline that you see in a lot of the Japanese horror films. Um, my problem with it is, is that whilst that part of the story is really interesting and I love what's going on with the scientists and the interaction between them and... Um, some great performances. 
my, my problem is, is that what's happening with the teenagers is actually the least interesting storyline they could have gone with. You know, they go with the zombie story, and I'm so sick to death yeah. of zombie stories. I wish when you find out that the teenagers are placed in a scenario where any one of a number of choices could happen. So they could summon the zombies, they could summon the ghosts. There's a, a Hellraiser-like puzzle that could have been uh, yeah. sort of um, solved and then, I guess, summoned a pinhead-type character who you do kind of get a glimpse of later on. My thing was, I was just wishing that so much that one of the other scenarios had actually happened. Well, that's one of the jokes in the film, is that one of the scientists bets on... Because they have, they have a, a betting pool on yeah. which, which horror they're going to summon. And uh, one of them so desperately wants the merman creature to, to be summoned. And of course it never is. It's, yeah. always, it's always the zombies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's my problem. I mean, I understand that they're trying to play a bit with the, with the sort of tenets and the stereotypes and the cliches of that type of story. But I just wish they hadn't gone with the most obvious version of that story. I wish they'd sort of made it a little bit more creative to go with the other side of the story. Mm. Which is actually the creative part. So I wholeheartedly agree, and I just found the teenage characters mind-numbingly boring. But they're meant to be. Though. I know they're meant one, to be. But what I'm saying is, there was too much of that, and not enough of the interesting stuff. There was, yeah, there but was how no much of the interesting way... stuff could you really have? I mean, you needed to have the teenagers for it to work because they're the rich. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. But there could have been a bit more behind-the-scenes stuff, a bit more. Actually, I actually think there was too much behind-the-scenes. It's, it's just. Right. It was just mind-numbingly boring until the about 20 minutes from the end. But that's the point, though. You have to have the boring stuff in order to get to the awesome well, stuff. I didn't have to sit there bored in order to see well, the good I, stuff. I, mean, I wasn't bored, so I guess that's the yeah. difference. Yeah. For the horror model specifically to work, you're meant to be able to relate or sympathise in some way with these characters. Yeah, exactly. I didn't care that any of these kids got killed. And that's the problem with a lot of modern horror if they could have just worked a little bit to make those characters have a little bit more to them than what they did, mm. um, was... or play up the fact that they're being manipulated so that we can mm. at least sympathise with them, the... um, I think it would have worked a bit better. You don't think they played that up, the fact they're being manipulated? No, because they do point out that their personalities have been manipulated so that they'll fulfil certain roles. Yeah. But because we don't see the, the personalities before the manipulation... You see it at the start when they're all get, gathering before their trip. Yeah, but there's no, real, no real huge difference between those personalities and what you see later on. You don't get yeah. enough of those personalities early on to see the changes that occur because of the manipulation for me to really care. Yeah, sure. yeah so yeah. she's still prancing around in her pants at the start there. You know, there's no indication that she's overly smart except that he says she is. Yeah. There's a nice scene with Chris Hemsworth at the start there where he recommends a book to her and says that she should read this and that will help with... Yeah. You know, um, but there's not enough of the established personality so that when the changes occur when they get to the cabin... There's not enough for me to begin with to see those changes and to be yeah, able to relate yep. to that part of the story. I totally agree. Fair enough. So let's move on. Uh, I I liked it, and I give it three point five out of five. I give it one. I will give it three more for the ideas than the actual. Yeah. As I said, than the execution. The Japanese thing's awesome. Yeah, and it's a really creative <laughs> idea. It is a really creative idea. Um, so that of course brings us to the Avengers, uh, which was his next project. Um, we've already covered the Avengers. In a previous episode, so we won't go too too full on with it. Um, it's huge. It's, it's a much now, better movie. It's now the third highest gr- film of all time. Yep. So highest grossing film of all time. So it's mm. you know it's a massive success. He signed on to do uh, Avengers two, which you know wasn't hard to figure out. Um, and he just wrapped up uh, filming on Much Ado About Nothing, uh, 
which is basically a who's who of uh, Whedon characters. Just one, one thing we didn't mention is just that he, he basically uses the same people over and over again, the same actors that he's, that he's comfortable with. Um, and why the hell not? <laughs> if it works for you, why the hell not? Um, so you'll, you'll quite often see actors from other projects if he's sharp in other, in, in other projects. And uh, yeah, Much Ado About Nothing is, is uh, one of those. Uh, so that's finished and that'll be on its way. Uh, so on to comics. From Dark Horse Comics, he did the miniseries Frey, which takes place in the far future of the Buffyverse. Um, and uh, the main character of Frey uh, shows up in various other projects that he did, including um, Buffy Season 8. Yeah, so Frey, am I the only person here that's actually read Frey? Yes. I've read the first two issues. I didn't yeah. mind it, but it wasn't enough to make me read the rest of the series or go out and buy the trade. Yeah, um, I've got the trade, and... Uh, I'm just not interested. It's uh, you know, the, a, a vampire, a slayer, a slayer in a future with flying cars. You know? Yeah, that's, that's essentially that's, it. that's pretty much it. Yeah, um, and so it's in the, where they, they become so jaded about the supernatural element is that you know vampires and monsters walk around and they just assume they're just mutations from mm. pollution and stuff. And I don't know, I, I don't know, just didn't really deal with them. I wasn't I, all that intrigued. I found my biggest problem with it was that I actually wasn't all that interested in Frey as a character. Mm. Yeah, and she's got a stupid name. And she did come across just very much as a poor man's Buffy. Yeah. With a bit of faith thrown in, because they tried yeah. very hard to she make her uh, pretty much up. faith. Mm. Um, he also did. Uh, oh, so and, and so I said uh, she shows up in season eight, uh, Buffy season eight, which is um, the follow-on, like the official continuation of the story of Buffy, but in comic form. It's it's an interesting beast. Season eight actually is that it, uh, it's 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 quite high, highly regarded, um, uh, but I just really just. Don't like it. It actually starts. It starts off quite well. I think it follows on from Chosen in, in a logical and enjoyable way. Um, so for the first, you know, four or five trades worth, uh, however many issues that is, it's actually quite interesting, including a pretty cool story with uh, Dracula making a re- making a return. Um, but then uh, it has and it has its big bad called Twilight, um, which was a poor choice considering the Twilight films. Well, anyway, the the, the, the big bad Twilight eventually it turns out to be someone who we all know and. Uh, it's an awful resolution. It just in the second half of it, it just culminates in Buffy and Angel having two issues of sex once again. Just just massive amounts of sex for no real reason. And let's not forget flying sex. Yeah, flying sex, which which event which for some reason then gets rid of magic and it's just I don't know. It's just, it's just stupid and just I just don't understand how the appeal to it. Like why end it that way? It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so um, other, on, the, on the other side, uh, Angel After the Fall, which is uh, Angel Season 6, is actually quite interesting. Um, so check it out. I, I, generally speaking, I actually agree with you about Season 8. It does start really well. Like, the first few storylines, I was wrapped. I was hmm. excited. It was really interesting. Um, the, the thing with the, the Twilight thing is that they actually do sta- establish it as a, the big mystery of the season. Yeah. You know, is who is Twilight? But for me, there is the crossover with Frey yeah. is actually really awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but strangely enough, I actually think the best story in the entire season actually doesn't in feature Buffy at all. It's the actual Faith and Giles story. Yeah. Where basically Faith is has to infiltrate high society, basically. Yeah. They have a pretty, pretty cool dynamic, uh, Giles and Faith. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, not a fan. He also does some Serenity comics, Those mm-hmm. Left Behind and Better Days, which uh, Those Left Behind is set uh, between Firefly and Serenity, mm-hmm. um, and Better Days is set before, before. Firefly. Yeah. Um, so, um, and they're, yeah, they're pretty cool. Well, the um, Those Left Behind is just meant to be the bridging. 
Yep. Going from seeing why we have the villains that we have in Firefly and why they're not there in Serenity. Yep. Um, it's, and that's really all it is. It, it is just there to basically say we've got a film coming out. Here's here's something that bridges the gap between. The, here's something that bridges the gap between the two. Go see the film. Yeah. It does what it does. And better days is okay. Yeah. It, it's, it's not great. It's okay. Mm-hmm. He also did. We well, we also mentioned the uh, the book, the Shepherd book, which was pointless. It's uh, pointless and boring. I didn't. I, they try to be clever with you know t- trying to tell the story backwards and forwards. Yeah. But. It actually, all it just told me was stuff that, if you weren't watching the show anyway... Wouldn't mean anything to Wouldn't you. mean anything. Yeah, I agree. And he also does a dollhouse. I, I don't know if Zach... If, uh, I think Zach writes the dollhouse. Is it Zach? I think the, it's Zach. Uh, yeah, which I haven't read, so can't really comment on. But of course, uh, the one that uh, Richo is very eager to talk about is, uh, is Whedon's dip into the Marvel Universe with Astonishing X-Men, uh, which was created specifically for him. Um, he did a 24-issue run... On it, and then handed over the reins to Warren Ellis. Wait a minute, created specifically for Richo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> while there are many no, comics that, whilst there are many comics that feel like they're specifically created for me, uh, this wasn't one of them. <laughs> um, yeah, Richo's not a fan. It's uh, it won it's won quite a lot of awards. Um, uh, has some nice artwork and has some excellent artwork, um, and introduced a whole bunch of uh, themes into the X Men, which are still felt today. I have a few problems with Astonishing X-Men. Um, and they're actually, to be honest with you, they're problems you see a lot these days in the comic industry in general. The first one is that, unfortunately, this story, being the high-profile story it was, and it was a massive sales success for Marvel at the time, but clearly Whedon was writing from his own little corner of the universe without really much concern as to what was happening in the rest of the X-Men books at the time and in the the Marvel Universe in general. So, unfortunately, the book disrupts a whole lot of other stories. Um, Most notably, um, uh, there was a Chris Chris Claremont story um, in Uncanny X-Men that he was building up involving um, the Hellfire Club. But then a version of the Hellfire Club suddenly pops up also in Whedon's book, and of course, Whedon being the high-profile book at the time, that story just kind of gets... The Claremont version of the story just kind of gets lost in the shuffle and my second problem with the book is that Whedon is clearly writing versions of the character from a period that he read and loved but without having read anything that's come after that point so a lot of the characters read very much their personalities read very much like their personalities might have read in the late mid to late 80s Mm. It's also really horribly decompressed as a story. Mm. You know, it does have some good moments. There are some fantastic character moments, um, but those moments are few and far between. Mm. Rating? Um, look, I'll give it two. I'll also go with two. Uh, he then went on to take over from Brian K. Vaughan on Runaways for a short period. Runaways, unfortunately, seems to be a series that only Brian K. Vaughan has really been able to capture. And Whedon's come onto it and... It's not all that interesting a story, and it doesn't really capture the feel of the book all that well. So that wraps up his comic stuff. So we'll just finish off uh, with one of his other projects, uh, which I think is actually one of his better projects. It's uh, during the writer's strike um, in 2008. Uh, Joss and his brothers, Zach and Jed, and uh, Jed's fiance now wife, Marissa, um, teamed up to do the web series... Dr. Horrible's Cinelom blog, um, which is 
awesome, awesome stuff. Um, is uh, like I said, it was, it was originally put onto the web and is now available on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, and it is it's a musical. So it stars Neil Patrick Harris uh, as Doctor Horrible, Nathan Fillion as his as his arch nemesis Captain Hammer, and uh, Felicia Day as the love interest. And um, it is 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 awesome stuff. So it basically deals with Doctor Horrible, who is uh, uh, is Billy, who is uh, trying to join the uh, the evil League of Evil um, as a as a super villain, and uh, he, you know comes up with these nefarious plots to do so, but he never kills anybody. And uh, the plots keep getting foiled by uh, Captain, Harrow, Ham- Captain Hammer, the supposed hero, Nathan Fillion, who's just a complete tool. He's just a complete tool. Yeah, that's about, about the best way. Because he's a hammer, get it? Oh, <laughs> oh, nice. Anyway. Um, and you know what the hammer refers to, because yeah. he tells us. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant, that scene. Brilliant. <laughs> the hammer's not my fist. Anyway. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> uh, and because it, it, it keeps getting... And... Uh, and um, Doctor Horrible, who uh, Billy has a unrequited love for uh, uh, Felicia Day's character, who um, he meets up with in a laundromat, <laughs> and um, and uh, so he's, he's he's basically a nice person. He just wants to change the world because he he knows it's horrible, and uh, and uh, <laughs> at some point, um, Hammer embarrasses him so much during the uh, the aforementioned uh, the fists the uh, um, the Hammer's not my fist scene. Mm-hmm. Um, that he decides to actually, you know, be evil and and join the evil league of evil and and uh, be a horrible person, and then he does eventually join them through the accidental death of Felicia. Um, is is gold? Uh, it's it's there. It's it, it's a cool story. It's cool songs. Um, but what I like the most about it is actually uh, the DVD has uh, a commentary track, like all these things do nowadays. Um, but it also has. The, the commentary track is actually a musical called Commentary, the musical, um, with all new, brand new songs that relate to the to the show. It's just, it's genius. I particularly like the song that um, Nathan Fillion sings, yeah. which is basically, I'm better than Neil. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they play up on this, on this fake uh, uh, rivalry, rivalry between, between the Neil, actors. Neil yeah. and Nathan, which is just absolutely gold. It's just, it's brilliant. I can't stress it enough. The show itself is good. But the commentary, just the idea and the execution behind it, it's just, oh my god! I like Simon's song. Yeah, Simon's song's good. <laughs> I also like the song about um, Asian characters and Asian stereotypes in yeah. Hollywood. Um, the whole thing is just brilliant. Yeah. It has, a, it has a, a standard commentary track as well, but the commentary of the musical is brilliant. And you can actually download commentary. You can actually download both of the soundtracks. It's, it's brilliant stuff. So check it out: DVD, Blu-ray, buy it. Awesome. Five out of five. I'd give it four. It's very entertaining. I don't think, once again, I think you're you're banishing around the word brilliant quite a lot here. Um, <laughs> the commentary alone gets five out of five. Yeah, once again, I have to agree with the original. I'll give it a four. Fair enough. But, yeah, you, you're kind of uh, drinking the Kool-Aid there a bit when it comes to <laughs> So that's it. That's our uh, spotlight on Joss Whedon. Um, it's uh, been a lot of fun. We'll do... Let us know of what you thought about the the concept and the format, and uh, if you liked it, we'll we'll go on and do some other people. Um, we take requests. Yeah, I mean, or I, do I, we? I, I got Hitchcock in the in the back of my mind. That'd be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Only if we could talk about the three investigators when we do it. <laughs> okay, oh, that'd be for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. So just let us know hey hey what you thought. Uh, coming up next. Coming soon. 
Okay, we've got a big list of films coming out on August 23. We get Total Recall, the reboot of the 80s classic, which we'll be reviewing next episode. Uh, documentary Bully, which is uh, not based on the Rockstar PlayStation 2 game, unfortunately, but is in a, a look at Bully, the, you know, the, the epidemic that is bullying in school these days. This has actually been one of the big successes of the recent Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah. Um, and everything I've heard from people that have seen it have actually said that it's depressing as hell, but that it's definitely worth seeing. One of the important things of it was they originally rated it uh, at a rating that would mean it would, wouldn't be allowed to be shown at schools. Yeah. And mm. then there was a campaign by uh, mm. a, a young girl to get it rated lower in order to show it, as, which, you know, to, and it the, to the intended audience. Yeah. And, uh, and success. Yeah. So, you know, power to the people. Holy Motors, a French film about a man who swaps between parallel lives. Um, a darling of the film festivals at the moment. Yeah. Um, oh, doesn't look very interesting to me, but hey. It sounds kind of Holly interesting. Minogue, it sounds kind of interesting. That's one that I'll certainly be checking out. Yeah. Uh, Hit and Run, which was formerly called Outrun, which meant I thought it was based on the computer game Outrun, but apparently it's not. No, you think, you no think relation. That a lot, don't you? Yeah, you know, it's half the films I've mentioned. But basically, the story is this: this uh, this guy who's not allowed to drive anymore and is on parole or something get, has to get his girlfriend and outrun. A bunch of people who were chasing after him, which is essentially the storyline of the game. So, uh, <laughs> run, uh, driver, run. Yeah. A, a, a natural, natural progression. To it doesn't think. sound anyway, very interesting. It doesn't no, it sound doesn't. very interesting at all. Actually, it looks pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Um, so I won't be avoiding that. Um, and seeking a friend for the end of the world, which is a romantic comedy uh, drama with Steve Carroll and Kira Knightley. About yet another world about to end movie. They're huge now. Mm. Melancholia. <laughs> They're big. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Steve Carroll fan, but I, it doesn't look very interesting at all. And then the following week on August 30, we get uh, Finding Nemo 3D re-release, um, and the film that should have been called The Return of the Hard Bastard Geriatrics, The Expendables 2. <laughs> That's a bit harsh. <laughs> you I know, like it though. You know, I'd like you to go up to any of those cast members <laughs> and say that to them and see what they, how they react. The Expendables one is just awful, awful stuff. Um, so I don't really have high, high hopes for Expendables Disappointingly too. awful. Well, that's got Chuck, Chuck Norris in it. Yeah, disappointing. All these awesome stars. Yeah. No. Don't, no. Cool. So before we finish up, I just want to do some shout-outs. Uh, we've had uh, a few uh, reviews and emails and stuff come in, so... Uh, not in order of importance, but uh, we've got a uh, shout-out to Benny Kane for his review on iTunes, uh, where he says that he uh, found out about us from All Star Comics, um, from our uh, flyer there, so awesome. Yes. And uh, he he, uh, he likes the dust jackets, because we tell him about bo- uh, science fiction books that he's not aware of and wants Excellent. to read. So. Thank you very much. Uh, everybody loves dust jackets. Captain Dust Jacket. Yeah, Dust Jacket is the best. Gotta say it like Captain Caveman. That's because Dust Jacket is the best. Captain Dust Jacket. And uh, also got a couple of followers, uh, Twitter followers and Facebook followers, uh, Suzanne Mayo and uh, John Doyle and a bunch of others. Um, So thanks everybody for those. Uh, In our episode where we reviewed Alien Influences uh, by Christine Catherine Rush, I tweeted. Christine to tell her that we did a review and she was nice enough to listen to the episode 
and uh, I'm going to let Crystal take over from here. That was very cool. She tweeted this like about four times, one of which just a retweet, and uh, and uh, and she thanked me for my support. So that's very cool. I did a little happy dance. Yay! <laughs> it is awesome. And she said it was fun. She said the review was fun. So. That uh, that is pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, thank you for listening. I mean, that's that's very cool. Though. Yeah, it is very cool. She had some cool comments, and she wants us to uh, make the Captain Dust Jacket T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm all for a Captain Dust Jacket T-shirt <laughs> myself, obviously. And it was nice. Of, it was nice of her to take the time. She did say that she was really busy, but it was nice of her to take the time to listen to it, and uh, and she liked it. And you know, I I, just, I was pretty excited. But Crystal was mega excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool. Um, I'd also like to do a very quick shout out to Pete and to Malthoid, who posted some comments on uh, the latest Who review on the War Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much. That's actually the first commentary we've gotten for the Who reviews, and it's uh, very rewarding to know that there are people out there reading it. And um, so, if you're reading any of the reviews, please uh, send some uh, feedback as well through um, the website because. Yeah, it was very, very rewarding to know when those came through and just great to read from people. So yeah. thank you. It's just nice to know that people are reading the site. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And those who reviews are cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Comment, comments on the posts are awesome. I get a, a little thrill every, t- every single exactly. time. Exactly. Reading exactly. the ones that come on for yours, the Dust Jacket ones. Uh, my Prometheus posts still, are still getting comments. So Excellent. Yeah, it's cool. So that's it. So um, don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or you can post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast, or you can tweet us at nerdculturecast, or leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. But most importantly, don't forget that you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. That is the most important. I love it. Opening up iTunes and seeing new rating and reviews. Brilliant. Coming up next episode, we've got Popcorn Junkie on Total Recall. Uh, Dust Jacket on Anna Dracula by Kim Newman, uh, which is one of my picks, and a round table on the Wild Newton universe. So that's it from me and the crew, Richard. I'm not drinking the weed and Kool-Aid. <laughs> I'm not obsessed with the man. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Luke. I've been brainwashed by the cult of weed and... And Crystal. Don't wipe my mind. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.